0: Well, we are in Exodus 21, and we have come now to the section of the book that is known as the Book of Ordinances. These are additional laws given by God that assume the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are are foundational to them, but they go uh, into more detail about everyday case laws. So, for example, what does it mean to unlawfully kill? Well, the Book of Ordinances gives us a a fuller picture of what the sixth commandment, thou shalt not unlawfully kill, what that means. And even with these additional laws though, uh, the, the Bible does not contain every single law found in ancient Israel. I think if you count them all up, it's in the 600s that they have in the Bible. No, Israel had thousands, thousands of laws and some of them changed or the application of them changed from place to place. Some laws were specific to certain places. And that's not unusual for a large group of people. So for example, this week, I asked Calvin Poole, how many laws were on the books in the state of Alabama? And he told stories about warehouse sized buildings and shelves upon shelves of legal codes for one specific area of the law. And that's just Alabama. That's not including the whole of the United States. It's like never-ending, right? Now, I say this because I've never listened to a pastor seriously, I mean seriously work through the book of Leviticus, and I've likewise never heard a pastor do this through this part of Exodus, ever. This is usually what we call the flyover zones, so where we're just going to skip to the end. I thought, no, this is this is God's words. We, sh- we should really... Work through this. I mean, once you finish the Ten Commandments, usually pastors just skip to Exodus 32 and the golden calf or Exodus 34 when God declares his character to Moses. And they hardly touch on sections like this one, even as it is God's word. And I get that. And some of what's ahead in our series on Exodus, it's going to be summarized. I'm not going to take us through the tabernacle verse by verse and, and every single little thing that's mentioned there, but we are going to work through it. But I think it's worth our time then to to work through these often neglected sections of Exodus and what they have to teach us about God and humanity. And so we begin where the book of uh, ordinances begins with what might be the most controversial uh, topic or passage of Scripture I've ever preached on, period. And it, it probably shouldn't be, but man, given our history and the history of this country, It is. It is. It's God's laws concerning slavery. So let me read for us. We're going to pick it up in Exodus 21, beginning with verse 1, that we'll be looking at the whole chapter. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughters a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do." If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment money. Well, this is, believe it or not, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. I think we need to. Heavenly Father, I'll be the first to say this is a controversial, very strange passage to us, and I'll be the first to say it kind of scares me to preach through this. So, Lord, I pray for courage. I pray for us as your people that we would have wisdom and discernment to think through these things well. I pray I would be clear But most of all, Lord, I pray you would be glorified and that we would want to love you with everything we've got. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, slavery, as it has been practiced throughout history and in our own country, uh, was and is a great evil. There is nothing that you are going to hear from me today Uh, that defends in any sense the chattel slavery that black people went through in this country. I think it is absolutely indefensible. You won't hear me defend the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, segregation, or any of that. And I think we are still dealing with the legacy of slavery to this day, especially the impact of Jim Crow. It's such a stain on our land. You know, when I drive through Scambia County and I see those huge fields of cotton, you know, I can't help but think about how many people were born, lived, and died in service to those fields and how much blood was spilled there, blood of our brothers and sisters. But in the ancient world, there were a lot of variations on slavery, some better than others. So for example, in the ancient world, slavery was not race-based. You know, any person from any race could be a slave. So, for example, some of the slaves in Rome came from what we, what we would think of as France and Germany. So you very much could be, you know, looking like a Hitler youth and be a slave. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, where a Roman general played by Russell Crowe is sold into slavery by his enemies, that's actually not far-fetched. This is exactly what happened to Joseph and Daniel, and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, though you probably know them better by their slave names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, Joseph wasn't a slave because he was Jewish. He was a slave because his brother sold him. You know, even so, he was given tremendous responsibilities as a slave under Potiphar, and eventually, under Pharaoh, he became the second most uh, powerful person in the world. So his status as a Hebrew and as a slave did not keep Pharaoh from elev- elevating him in any way. It was not unusual, like with Daniel, to have highly educated slaves in the highest reaches of government. Uh, Daniel and his friends were taken by the Babylonians for just that purpose. Now, you definitely, you definitely saw chattel slavery too, like what was on view in America. That's, that's what eventually happened to Israel in Egypt, and God hammered. Egypt because of it. The Roman economy. I know a lot of people look at the Romans as the high point of civilization. Y'all, they weren't. The Roman economy was built on chattel slavery, in particular, sexual slavery. Even as there were high ranking slaves or even some people who voluntarily entered into slavery with the expectation of being released by the age of 30 becoming a freedman and a citizen, I mean, there were even some slaves, believe it or not, who had slaves themselves. So when we talk about slavery in the ancient world, y'all, it's complicated. There's whole libraries devoted to these topics. You can't just immediately think of what happened in this country and apply it to every instance of slavery in the ancient world. You just can't. That said, slavery in Israel was different. And the danger for us is reading What we know from American history into the Bible. It's just not the same thing. You're going to see that in a minute. It's just not the same thing, at least in terms of the laws of Exodus 21. Now, to be sure, Solomon sinfully forced his own people into slavery for his building projects. In fact, the text presents him as a new Pharaoh. But this is not what's on view in Exodus 21. And I have to give credit to, to James Jordan's commentary and his research on, on this area. And much of what follows in the weeks to come is actually structured on his work on Exodus 21 through 23. Uh, that said, Israel could not. She was forbidden from engaging in chattel slavery. It was expressly forbidden even as Israel was allowed to purchase foreign slaves. So in Exodus twenty one sixteen. It explicitly says that both the one who engages in man-stealing, that's chattel slavery, the one who engages in man-stealing and the one who buys the stolen man will be guilty of a capital offense and should receive the death penalty. That's chattel slavery. God says those who either steal or purchase a stolen human must die for that crime. So it's convenient then that R.L. Dabney, who was a a Southern Presbyterian pastor and an apologist for slavery, argued that the Mosaic law was no longer binding on Christians. So they didn't have to take this stuff seriously. Think about it this way. Had Christians in this country taken Exodus 21 as seriously as they did Exodus 20 and the 10 commandments, this country would be a very different place perhaps actually a more Christian place. You know, like with the laws on divorce, the laws on slavery are in response to sin and are not an anything-goes endorsement of the practice. As Jesus argues in Matthew 19, God did not intend divorce. It's foreign to his intentions for humanity, but he permitted it because of sin. That's why there's no such thing as no-fault divorce in the Bible. Divorce is always in response to sin. So God permits divorce in the cases of adultery. And as Exodus 21 argues in terms of how female slaves were to be treated, divorce is permitted in the case of abuse. While God does want reconciliation, if it's possible, in the case of adultery, no woman is required to stay in an abusive marriage. No man is either, but it's usually women who suffer from verbal or physical abuse from their husband. So let me just say this again. Because some churches have taught that God hates divorce no matter what, and that's simply wrong, and they have taught that women have to just stay there and take it, no. No woman is required to stay in an abusive marriage. Abuse, like adultery, breaks the covenant of marriage. So, for example, in chapter 21, verses 20, and then again in 26 through 27, a master is not permitted to kill his slave, male or female. If he does, he gets the death penalty. Murder is murder in Israel, no matter who commits it and no matter who was committed against. That doesn't happen in other ancient cultures. In other cultures, if you killed your slave, it was like throwing your money away. It'd be like saying, dude, why'd you wreck your truck? You're an idiot. No, 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 no. Israel was different, and Israel's slaves are still God's image bearers, and we're gonna see why here in a minute. If a master strikes his slave, male or female, and it it gives the example of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the slave goes free immediately. You could not treat a slave however you wanted. They were not your playthings or a disposable piece of property or a tool to be used at your discretion. Israel was radically different, radically different from her neighbors in the treatment of slaves because key to Israel's identity was that she was once chattel slaves. And because of that, she was not to treat other humans like this, no matter what. So remember, the book of Exodus is structured as the movement from slavery to Sabbath, from bitter pain and suffering to life and rest with God. And the laws on slavery, believe it or not, actually reflect that. That takes us to the specifics of the law that we read through. And the law, as you read it, is split according to rules for men and rules for women. So let's start with men. The first thing to notice in our passage is that the Bible makes a distinction between Hebrew slaves, that is people who are part of the covenant community and those outside of it. The Jewish slave served for a maximum of six years and then was set free with gifts. In fact, you get that, that, that further explanation in Deuteronomy 15, and here's what it teaches. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed, you shall furnish, furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So in other words, when a man had served in your home, because that's where this was being served out, in your home for six years, you gave him a starter pack for a new independent life. It's just like what a good parent does for their newly adult child or what we do in terms of giving wedding gifts. Get the picture here, your male slave served in your home and became part of your household. The reason Israelite homes were to send out freed slaves like this was because this is exactly what God did for Israel when he brought his people out of Egypt, complete with the treasure of their former masters. Slaves now purchased outside of the covenant people, that is foreigners, were circumcised, which marked them off as now part of the community. And even though they would not be released after six years, Leviticus 25 indicates that a slave could buy his freedom if he so desired. That means slaves were allowed to take wages and to hold property even foreign slaves. Though Exodus 21 doesn't say this, Deuteronomy 15 makes it clear that the only reason a member of the covenant people could be sold into slavery apart from a crime like, say, theft, was because of debt. That's important. That's the sin that occasions the laws about slavery. So don't think of this in terms of our, our capitalist economy that runs on credit and debt you know, perpetually. Think of this in terms of mismanagement or immaturity think of how proverbs talks about a wayward son or the lazy or the fool or those unwilling to work or those who squander uh, their talents or their wealth or just think of jesus's parable of the prodigal son that's the picture that's the picture so just as with the sabbatical year all debts are forgiven included in that same pattern is the principle that all slaves are released from their debt in the seventh year. Six years, a slave will labor for his death, debt, and in the seventh, he will rest with his debt forgiven. So it puts a completely different light on what Laban did to Jacob, doesn't it? I mean, he practically calls Jacob his son, then treats him as a slave, forcing him to work for a bride that should have been freely given to him as if she was a debt. Not once, but twice he does this to Jacob. See, Jacob as A slave anticipates his son Joseph as a slave and even further, his grandchildren, Israel, as a slave. Now, a man could enter into slavery single or married. If he was married and had children and entered into slavery, they went with him into slavery and they went out with him when he left. If he was single and his master provided a wife for him and he in turn had children as a slave... When he was freed, his wife and children remained with the master because technically they belonged to the house. Now, that's not to say that the newly freed man couldn't visit his wife and children. Of course he could. Or that he couldn't purchase their freedom. He could. It's that the slave's wife and children remained with the house until the slave could take full responsibility for himself and in turn take responsibility for his family too. So believe it or not, the idea is that this protects the wife and kids from the man in case he had not learned from the discipline of his slavery. As Jordan argues, the principle in view is that Israel's laws on slavery were intended to train irresponsible men into productive covenant members. Just remember again, what are the grounds for Israelites becoming slave? slaves? It's either debt or crime. How did a man get himself into that position? That's the question. Most likely, but not always, most likely it was from their immaturity and their irresponsibility. We still see that today. And all of this assumes that Israelite homes would hold fast to God and would walk in his ways. That is, that these homes would be a godly home. Otherwise, and of course, history bears this out, slavery would quickly become abusive. It would become chattel slavery. This means then that the covenant people, they could not. They could not pursue slavery like the world does it. Just as Israel was not allowed to pursue no-fault divorce, and it's telling, isn't it, that some of Jesus' enemies were looking to do just that? You know, so Israel could not pursue chattel slavery. They could not act like how the Egyptians had treated them. Now, because of all the connotations that come with that word, Slavery, it's it obviously, how could it not? It seems cruel and unimaginable to us, but in a certain sense, what, what's on view here is far, far more humane than throwing young men in prison and leaving them to rot or setting them up for a cycle of poverty and failure. You know, in Israel, for men, slavery was disciplinary. It was aimed at the redemption of the man in debt. The law wanted him to move from debtor to forgiven from slavery to sabbath you know so in a certain sense and i i know this is strange it was a kindness you know instead of prison death or having your hand cut off the penalty was to be raised up virtually as an adopted adult male being taught how to be productive and responsible that was its purpose now that's not to say that slavery was pleasant it was not it was not a bunch of giggles Just as prison isn't supposed to be pleasant, neither was slavery. I imagine some situations were better than others, but it was disciplinary, and and masters did have the right to dole out punishment for bad behavior, and they did. Even so, they could not outright beat them. But there was the expectation of discipline if a slave acted out. Now, perhaps you remember reading this. The law did make provision for men who, after their six years were up, decided they wanted to stay. They wanted to stay with the house permanently. Maybe they had really become a trusted member of the family. Think of Joseph and Potiphar's house. Maybe they didn't want to try to make it on their own. Or as the text says, they didn't want to be separated from their wives and kids. Great. This is allowable. And what happens is that the slaves' wishes had to be recorded at the tabernacle amongst the leaders of God's people ensuring that this was not against the slaves' will that both then both master and slave they go together to the door or the doorpost of the house and his ear was pierced by the master with an awl he, he gets a a permanent earring which was the mark of a slave and apparently in Israel this did not vote as a bad sign they didn't view this as derogatory it's why Israel for for example, came out of Israel, excuse me, Israel came out of Egypt wearing earrings. In fact, those earrings were contributed towards the building of the tabernacle. See, the ritual harkens back to the Passover and the blood on the doorposts in which the slave now is being marked off by his master's house. And it is also a version of circumcision in which the slave now listens To his master's voice alone. Now, we know the obvious version of circumcision, but the Bible also talks about the circumcision of the heart. Perhaps you've heard that one. It also talks about the circumcision of the ear. That's why I often pray for when we do it, you know, before the service or before the sermon, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We're praying for a circumcision of the ear. So, in other words, the slave has become a miniature picture of Israel's life to God. Just as Israel was to have ears to listen to her Lord and master alone, so the slave, as an adopted son of the house, listens to his master's voice. Now, the laws for women are different, and women were not to be treated like men. So you don't see that model of slavery for women at all in Israel, or you're not supposed to. A woman could be purchased, as a wife or as a wife for a son or as a wife for a slave. Now, to get the idea here, put this in comparison to a free woman, to a free woman as a bride. A free woman was also purchased, so to speak. It was called the bride's price. The groom, and it was most likely the father paying this, would pay a certain amount of money that went directly to the bride. That money remained with her. This was her insurance money or her protection money. Uh, Free married women had a, a certain amount of financial independence from their husbands and often had their own quarters or for the rich, their own servants. So you certainly see that with Sarah and Leah and Rachel, just as examples. It's different though if a woman is being purchased, not as a free woman, but as a slave. If a man purchases a woman to be his wife, he still must treat her as his wife, even as he is paying the father for his daughter. That makes me think uh, that debt or financial issues are somehow still in play here, but the text doesn't mention that. Even so, this means that the, the slave woman does not have the financial independence of the free woman, even as she is still considered his full wife. Now, if for some reason the man changes his mind about her, and this is presuming before she has been married, he must let her be redeemed. So just think of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer buying the right to Ruth. And you've kind of got the picture here. He certainly could not sell her off to a foreign people like Joseph's brothers did to him. And if he designates the young woman for his son, he is required to treat her as his daughter as his own blood, if he has purchased her but decides to take someone else instead as his wife, he still has the responsibility to provide for everything as if she were his wife, including her ability to get married to someone else. And if he refuses, the law is on her side. The law is on her side. She goes free and he loses his investment. And I know all of this sounds really harsh to us, but it's a radically different culture from ours. But let's put it in a different perspective. To put it another way, to an ancient Israelite looking at our modern times, the idea that a free woman wouldn't have her own separate bank account filled with money paid to her before the wedding by the groom's family that her husband could never touch, complete with her own separate rooms and possibly her own servants. Well, to an ancient Israelite, modern women might have gotten a bad deal on marriage. You know, in some ways, modern marriage has been way worse for women. There were far more protections for women in at least Israelite law, even as they had less civil rights than now. You know, we assume a romantic view of marriage, but in the ancient world, and really up until very recently in human history, marriage was often contractual, and and love had nothing to do with it. You know, love was something that came later. So in other words, we read this text as a bunch of romantics. They didn't view it that way at all. What's more, if you read through all of chapter 21, it's clear that men with power, that is masters, could not treat slaves, male or female, however they want. So both men and women had to be. They had to be treated as image bearers. You could not slap around your bought wife or your freed one. You could not put a beat down on your male slave. Women did not just have to blindly submit to evil masters or husbands, like how many so-called Christians today still teach. The heads of households were responsible for the well-being of those under their care, including their slaves. That's why Boaz is such a wonderful example of a godly Israelite. Well, what makes this passage and I, really, I, I'd argue the Bible, in general, is so difficult for us is that we have radically different assumptions than what we see here. Radically different assumptions about people, and hierarchies, and marriage, and what the rehabilitation of a person who's not quite ready for society what that looks like. You know, so for example, you know, we may, without a thought, you know, call Jesus Lord. But none of us have ever experienced life under a human king or had to respect a master. We've had bosses. We know what a mayor is, sure. No, we find rebellion and disrespect of human leaders, especially presidents, as easy as breathing. You know, we take it as a God-given point of pride to do this, so we can't really conceive of what it means to call Jesus Lord. And I think it shows, you know, we are often Sunday Christians or more accurately one hour a week Christians. And the rest of the week, we serve other masters, most often ourselves. And what the Bible makes very clear is that humans were made to serve all of us. We were made to serve. We can't live without a master. And if we won't serve the true God, we will go looking for something else to serve. That's what stands behind these laws, at least for men on slavery. So we don't think of God in terms of our master and king, and it's a problem. We don't think of our relationship to him as his bride either, especially in terms of passages like this one. When Israel was in Egypt, she was not a free woman. She was a slave. Nobody was courting her as a wife, and why would they? No, she was redeemed by God. That is, she was someone else's chattel and God bought her because that's what redemption means. It means to buy back. God bought her to be both a son and a bride to him. And the New Testament continues that thinking. If you look at the language of Ephesians 5, Christ redeemed his slave bride by taking the place of a servant and dying the death of a slave. And if you didn't know Crosses were often used to punish slaves. So our central symbol, the one directly over my head, is a slave symbol. It's a slave symbol. It's why Paul calls himself a slave or a bondservant for Christ. I think he had passages just like this in mind, even as he was following in Christ's own footsteps. And with Paul, you know, this sort of language wasn't merely spiritual. It wasn't a metaphor that had no bearing in the real world. No, Paul lived his life literally as a man in slavery to Christ, complete with the willingness to unfairly endure the discipline often reserved for slaves. But this passage also shows us how God views people, people we often take lightly or that we don't see as people at all. You know, it is impossible it is impossible to make a defense of American slavery from passages like this. And why would we even want to? If we take Exodus 21 seriously, then we must, we must condemn that part of American history. You know, I'm grateful to be an American. I'm grateful to be Southern. I've lived in other parts of the country. I don't wanna live anywhere else. I don't wanna be Midwestern don't want to be coastal, I want to be in the South. Even so, it's why I am totally fine with Confederate flags and monuments going the way of the dinosaur. And why wouldn't I be? I mean, it's like having shrines to Moloch or Baal in our midst. Only people call them their Christian heritage. And you know what? If that makes me unpopular with my brethren, I don't care. I choose to love God's word more than what my brothers in this town or in the South think. I want to love God's word more. You know, and maybe rightly so. It's a Christian heritage of sin and wickedness that needs to be repented of. And as many of my black friends rightly say, what happened in America was not a new Israel. As many pastors have wrongly contended, it was a new Egypt Crouched in Christian language. I mean, that's how the black church has seen it for hundreds of years. I mean, if you like that song we sing on Jordan's Stormy Banks, that's a slave song, as they longed to be free. How can we not listen to them? You know, further, this passage calls into question how we view and treat troubled young people. You know, this law was really aimed, when you think about it, at young people, not the middle-aged or or old people. No, it was aimed at young people. And I I don't know that I have any solutions for this, but I think it's obvious that jail and prison don't make young people who have committed petty crimes any better. It's usually the opposite. It It exacerbates the problem. And so often, you know, it's the troubled kids. It's the troubled kids. And by the way, this shows up across every demographic, every demographic. It's the kids who are fatherless. And this can happen with fathers in the house, by the way. I see it all the time at Fort Dick. It's the kids who are acting out. It's the kids who are making bad decision after bad decision. Guess what? They need the most love. They do, not the least. And yet they tend to be the kids we shy away from because we rather not deal with them. And I get it. I get it. We want to reward good behavior, and it's so much easier to do that. In Israel, under God's law, families literally paid for the right to bring the troubled kids into their homes and discipled them with the hope of redemption. They had six years, and they knew it. Again, I don't have any solutions for how this might look in our community, but at the very least, At the very least, it begins with us seeing our relationship to God differently. Yes, we are his adopted sons and daughters. Yes, we are his bride, but we were literal slaves. Marked by a slave's symbol that he redeemed and he demands as his people purchased at great price that we walk in his ways. Not the world's ways, his ways. So, may we be like Paul, like a willing slave pierced on the door of his master's home, who cannot stand to part from his Lord and wants his ear permanently open to God and his ways. May we be like that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good your steadfast love endures forever. You are so kind. You are so gracious. You are so long-suffering. May we, day in, day out, turn back to you, remembering your love to such an unfaithful bride, remembering how tender you have been to us, how patient you have been with us in our sin, in our hard-heartedness, and how often we try to stuff our ears to you. Thank you for this grace. Work in us your spirit. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.